Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the Gospel of Mark, the greatest threat, not just to humanity, but to life itself, is human behavior controlled by human perspectives. When an individual faces any question, they can't help but ask how that question impacts their life. Will they suffer? Will they survive? Will they lose? In this way, their next action, whether committed by word or by deed, can't help but be selfish. The individual thinks and acts in defense of what they believe is best for them. They do not think about the rest of humanity, let alone the totality of the Lord's creation. Nobody says, I am going to do X, because if I do not, in 500 or a thousand years, there will be a negative outcome for a generation yet unborn. That is not how the human mind works, and that is exactly why the Bible seeks to sabotage human reason and undermine the individual. How do you get a person to act against their interests in the short term for the sake of something far more important than themselves? You remind them that the day of reckoning, which they believe is far away in the future, could, in fact, come at any moment, and not even Jesus knows when. So stay awake and keep watch, because you never know. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 195 of the Bible as Literature podcast. These questions keep coming up in the text, not just in the Gospel of Mark, but these are questions that appear throughout the Bible about the things you can control and the things you can't control about the decisions that need to be made even though you don't have all the pieces, about the actions that have to be taken on the basis of trust, not on the basis of having the total picture in mind, because you can't have the total picture in mind. And that's why I love verse 32 of chapter 13, Richard, because it makes the point that not even Jesus himself has control over what happens when, which puts stress on this question of duty and the commandment. In Job, we've talked a lot about Job this week, people often make much ado about the difference between Job's wife cursing God and then Job in chapter 3 cursing the day he was born. On the surface, it looks like two different things, but if you're scriptural, you don't see a difference between cursing God or cursing his will. When Jesus talks about 
he himself not knowing the day or the hour. He is acquiescing. All of the control is in the palm of his father's hand. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. People are so obsessed about knowing the day and is there anything we can know about the day? Should we know the day? No, we can't know the day. But what's interesting is if you've been following the text up to this point, he said heaven and earth in the previous verse will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So everyone's obsessed about when this world is going to disappear, when the stones of the temple are going to fall. But remember, Jesus said, when you're called up to the magistrates, don't worry, I'm going to speak for you. The word will continue. The heavens and the earth are going to pass away. Your life is going to pass away. The only thing that's important, though, is that the word abide. And that's what Jesus has been talking about this entire chapter, really, is making sure that the word abides. Don't get in the way of the word, but allow the word to subsist. From the very beginning of Mark, it's been about planting the seed of the word. It's always been about the word. And Jesus in chapter 13 has been trying to move the hard hearts of the people from obsessing about what they see around them to focusing on the word itself. So why do the angels need to know when the heavens and the earth are going to pass away? It doesn't matter. You have the commandment. You have the word. The word's not going to pass away. All the other stuff is going to pass away. By the way, the only thing I care about is the word, and the only thing you should care about is the word. So what were you saying about the heavens and the earth? When you're given a word to carry out, you carry out the word. You don't profess your love of that commandment or even of the person who commanded it to you. You simply do what's said. If I tell my daughter to mow the lawn and she says, I love you, I say, love you too, hon, but the grass is still long. So what? And you push it even further. I love you, dad. Let me go put you in this nice retirement home. I'll see you at your funeral. Love you. What does it mean? It means nothing if it doesn't come with the respect of carrying out the will. Take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. And I love the example of your father-in-law you gave in a previous episode. If you've had weeks of rain and there's a limited window to either sow the seed or to gather the harvest, you have to get on the tractor and work 35 hours straight. And what scripture is proposing is that you live every day of your life this way it is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge assigning to each one his task also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert notice once again we are in the roman empire and the metaphor that jesus uses is the household where you have slaves who have assigned duties the implication being that the ones to whom he is addressing this text, beginning with the characters of the story, and by implication, everyone who hears the story, those are the ones whom the Lord considers slaves. And Jesus himself just said, 
that he is under the true patrician, his father, who is the only one who knows the appointed time, which means everybody, as Paul teaches us throughout his letters, as we studied in 1 Corinthians, everyone has a place in the pecking order and our responsibility with respect to the things that matter, to the things that count, to the ultimate things, is not to ask the philosophical why, and not to waste time doing anything other than executing the will of the one who went on the journey. You have to do your assignment. The only valid question is not, why did I have to be the one to watch the door? No. You can ask, though, what do I need to do to fulfill my responsibility? What is the purpose of my responsibility? How can I execute my responsibility? Am I working hard enough to execute my responsibility? These are all helpful questions. As long as while you're having these questions, you're actually digging the hole in the ground. In the Roman Empire, there is a close relationship between the household and the inheritance. We think of them as separate things. But don't forget, in the Roman world, the household was not just where you slept and ate your meals. The household is also a small business just like a farm in the United States would have been or something like that 100 years ago. This is how the household subsists. So the inheritance then is when the father dies, then the oldest son is in charge of making sure that not only they are keeping the house, but they have to keep this whole enterprise going in order to keep all these people alive and their children because slaves have children and those children are going to stay in the household. And The son has a job to keep this all going. Now, the inheritance that Jesus talks about, it's the word. And so the responsibility of all these servants is to keep this family business going. But what's the family business of God the Father? It's the word. It's not the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth will crumble. But the word has to keep going if all of his servants are going to subsist. And so everyone in the household has a single responsibility. And that is preserving the family business of the father and the son, which is the word. The doorkeeper is a very important literary mechanism. It represents the function of the Lord's appearing, the function of judgment. It's like this beautiful children's story, The Cat and the Hat. I loved reading that story to my kids when they were younger because every time I saw the last page when you turned it and you saw the mom's foot just outside the door, I said, no, that's the Lord God. And the kids got the message that the whole story is nonsense. But what brings the whole story to conclusion, what brings everything into clarity, what puts everything in good order, is the knowledge that mom is coming home and you have to answer. The point is not, again, as we've said many times, that it's about the literal end of the world. Because in practical terms, when you die, it's the end of the world. So scripture is telling you, you don't have a lot of time. Keep watch. Be vigilant. Death comes like a thief. And then you're out of time. So pay attention and take every moment and don't lose time. Execute the Lord's will. Do his will. Do his will. It will make you wise. When I see a young person who's drifting, they need only one thing, a job and a boss they don't like. And just do that for five years and then come talk to me. But if you're sitting on the sidelines asking why, I can't help you. How can you learn to swim by asking why God created water? 
I love Mark, and I am thankful to my parents that they named me after Mark, the evangelizer of Egypt, because Mark is a practical Semite. Everything he does is immediate, immediately, immediately. Ephthys, when is a good time to do the commandment? Immediately. Why should I do the commandment? Let's talk about it after you die. You know this expression, my cousin was painting at the church recently, and I said to her, you're working too hard. She said, don't worry, Father Mark, I'll sleep when I die. I don't know if she read the Gospel of Mark, but she encapsulated it. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, parenthetically, Peter, or in the morning. What a powerful verse when you know where the story goes. When I lived in Morocco and we didn't have phones and people would come over, they would knock on the door and it was often the matriarch of the house would come to the door. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who are you here to see? And she would decide whether you came in the house or whether the person you came to see was going to come outside to talk to you. She decided who was coming in and who was going outside. But why was she like this? Because she was in charge of the household. She had to make sure that the honor of the household was kept up, that they didn't get riffraff to come in the house. If there was riffraff in the house, she was in charge of getting rid of them. This was her job. And even her younger brother had to listen to her because she was in charge of the house. But it's about making sure that the honor of the house and the integrity of the house stay together. Now, when what you're protecting is not a house made of stone, but is a word, or more importantly, the word, this is what you're preserving. And so if you are not there preserving the word, someone can come in and destroy the word, take the word, do something with the word, so that when it's, the master comes back, there's nothing for him to find. The word that he left there, the inheritance, the household that he left there, there's nothing for the next generation. That's when you're in trouble. Everyone's in trouble at that point. That's the urgency, ultimately. The text is playing on your fears. It's playing on the fact that you understand what it means to keep watch when there's a danger. The reason you understand is because you're thinking about your own skin. But it's using that in a way to trick you into caring about life. Not about your life, but about life. And if you care about life, which is the Lord's gift... If you really care about life, you care about making sure that this seed that is the source of life, which is what's going on in Mark, I'm thankful that you keep bringing this point up about the household and continuing the seed, which is classic from Genesis. Abraham isn't interested in building a business. He's interested in continuing the name of the household, which pertains to the household of God and the continuation of God's Zerah on the earth, which is Genesis all the way. And it's Mark all the way. But if you care about life, you realize you've got to make sure this seed continues. If you take a step back from the biblical genre and put yourself in the frame of mind of a science fiction genre and think of the seed as being some science fiction object that has power to save humanity. If you take that perspective, this makes more sense. Because... You're thinking about urgency because you're afraid of what happens if you don't keep watch. 
but you're being trained to think about what happens after you, everyone you know, and everything you've built is gone. What happens after that for humanity? And that's where Mark is aiming. That's the life of the world, so to speak. What's fascinating about it in this context is that the word will abide as long as you get out of the way. Do not speak your word, but speak the word, and then everything will be fine. And everything you do, you must be vigilant to make sure that it's only that word. You must be vigilant in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. And since my cousin would have been painting at the church, she doesn't have to worry too much about verse 36. But the point, again, is being reiterated. You have to be conducting Bible study or acting out on what you studied when the Lord comes. Think about all the things you do during the day that have nothing to do with the will of God. Now you ask, Father Mark, how could I function if everything I do throughout the day has to do with the will of God? It's an invalid question. It's an invalid question. Because when you go to sleep at night, when you get up in the morning, when you walk along the way, meditate on the Lord's precepts, when you greet your co-workers in the morning, when you're sitting at your desk and someone bothers you with a question and you're irritated because you want to do your own work, when someone comes to you because they're struggling with something, when you have the opportunity to be selfish and to seek your own gain by disparaging someone else, when you find yourself judging someone, do you, for example, hear the word of the Lord and openly confess the fact before the conversation begins, whatever my beef is with you, let me begin by saying, I'm this, 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 this. Nobody does this. Well, some people at least try to do this, but most people don't even think about it. And then they go to church and they pray and they check God off each week. It's not how it works. No, I remember talking one time to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi about Lubavitch, the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And I said, how do they even make a living? You know, there's so much dedication they have to put into Torah. Saturday completely is out, but then there are the prayers that they have to do throughout the day and the studying they have to do all the time. And he said, well, usually they get a job where they have some flexibility. That's why a lot of them go into sales or something like that, because in sales, you just shut down and you go do your thing and you come back and you sell again. But what fascinated me is that they structured their entire life around what? Studying Torah. Exactly. It was not the other way around. How do I live? Well, the actual valid question is, why do you live? Not why in the philosophical sense that we're ridiculing, where you're just wasting time to stall or you're complaining that you're a victim. Right. Not why, but what, what for? for? What are you living for? What are you working for? What are you raising your children for? What are you sleeping for? What are you eating for? The only reason we sleep and eat and go to the doctor is because then maybe we'll have one more day that we can study the word and spread the word as best we can. This is what Matthew means, and I believe that Matthew is expressing the same meaning that you find in Job, and it pertains here in the sense that we're dealing with the urgency of God's will. You cannot give God lip service. You can't go on Sunday and say, I love you, Jesus, and then not at every moment of every day make the decision that you are here not for your job, you are here not for money. You are here not even for your co-workers or for supporting your family. 
you are here for the word of the Lord. And if you take that stance and you interrupt every moment of your life with the wisdom and the judgment of the Lord's precepts, it will put everything else in proper order. If you don't live this way, if you deal with scripture the way you deal with a self-help book or an interesting thing you heard on TED Talks or a personality you like, the way people go shopping, if you do that, not only do you emasculate scripture, but you emasculate it to your own peril. It's not something that is an appendage to you or something that you choose like your favorite size iPhone. It has to be something that controls you. And in the word control is implied the fact that you don't have a choice. People, when they talk about this, so many different Christians, they have different ways of saying it, whether they're talking about, are you saved, are you not saved, or they say, are you in the church, are you not in the church, you know, however you want to say it, there's different ways of looking at it. But they're not even halfway there. Because all that means is whether you're a part of the household or not. But if you've been called to be part of the household, you have a job to do. And the point of that household, what's the industry of that household? I'm going to keep saying it until people are sick and tired of it. Cultivating the word and reaping the word and planting the, the word. word. And it's the word, the word. That's the family business. Yes. That's it. If you want to be part of this family, great. But guess what? In this family, we've all got a job to do. And if I happen to be out of town as the father, doesn't mean you can go take a nap. The business has to continue. It doesn't matter. I remember there's a restaurant that I go to and uh, the owner is the mother. When she's there... You get great service, no matter who is serving you. But when she's not there, the service is not as good. This cannot be how the household of God runs. The household of God has to run as well, whether he's here or not here, because you don't want him to come in and see you giving bad service. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. And here, what I'd like to say is two things, Richard. The first part, part A of verse 37 is classic Pauline language. What I say to you, the insider, I say to everyone out of mercy, to all the nations. I'm not making this up. This chapter is about carrying the word of God to all the nations. I'm not just saying it to the 12 tribes, to my disciples. This is not for Israel. This is not insider information. This is for everyone. And again, the mercy of the Lord in preserving the remnant is so that the word of this wisdom can get out to everyone so that they too can benefit from it. Notice, what fundamentalists want to do is make out of chapter 13 an end time story in which they're the heroes because they're the insiders. We get snatched up into heaven. What Jesus is saying is that I'm putting pressure on you I'm putting the fear of God into you so that you would work harder to make sure that everyone would receive this message. And here's the kicker, to make sure that this household continues, which means how can it be about end times if he's setting up a household in which there are slaves whose job it is to cultivate the seed? When you make out of this a conspiracy theory about the end times, you're taking yourself off the hook it's so easy for people to take themselves off the hook when they say that what God is trying to preserve is them. 
Nowhere in this chapter do I see any good news for any individual who wants to be preserved. When Israel was disobedient after the Exodus, God wanted to wipe them out and raise up seed from Moses. And Moses said, if you wipe them out, everyone's going to say that you couldn't preserve your people in the wilderness. So he had to do it so that the word of God's might remain. Now, does that say anything about the virtue of the people? No. All it talks about is the unfortunate corner that his disloyal people blocked him into. Let me explain salvation to everyone scripturally. Salvation means victory. Victory is something that is granted by God to an army, for example, or to a nation or to a city. God grants victory. God takes victory away. God as the king, the one who saves, comes in and rescues a group of people. That's the etymology scripturally of the word salvation. We have an example of this in our culture. When you talk about victory, you talk about a coach or a team. You don't say the center on the football team has 15 wins. You say the coach has 15 wins. So now you think about the seed. What all of you want to do is think about all of your failings, all of your mistakes, all of your shortcomings, all of the relationships that you have trouble with, all of your bad habits. That's how modern Christians talk. They're very self-centered and solipsistic. But scripture is saying, look, I'm only interested in outcomes. The Bible is all about outcome-based management. <laughs> in other words, whatever your life is, if you just can make sure this seed is carried across the line so someone else can pick it up and keep carrying it, it will have made all of it worthwhile. You and I heard this secular author recently make this statement. She had been through a lot of suffering in her life. And she said, you know, I managed to get through this suffering. And I know there are a lot of people who are having a very tough time getting to the other side of their suffering. So I wanted to write this book because if I don't, I'm a jackass. Whatever the content, if a secular author thinks this way, how much more so should someone who believes it's the word of God, the eternal word? If you aren't spreading the word, if you're not spreading the word, you are a jackass. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.